Hey there, this is Stephanie from the Real Science YouTube channel and the new Modulus podcast. If you want even more educational content from me and loads of other content creators, then you need Nebula. In addition to getting tons of amazing podcasts ad-free and early, Nebula is a place where me and my content creator friends release tons of experimental and exclusive content you can't find anywhere else. Head to watchnebula.com modulus to sign up now. This is Modulus, the podcast hosted by me, Brian McManus. And me, Stephanie Salmon. In each episode, we take turns sharing the stories of the people behind extraordinary science, engineering, and technological advancement. To inspire not only ourselves, but generations of inventors and history makers. Today, we're talking to an engineer whose work and hair thrusted him into the national spotlight following the successful deployment of NASA's Mars Curiosity rover. He's taking us inside the arc of his career, the make or break moments behind the Curiosity rover and his rise to overnight celebrity. I got a couple texts from friends and I was like, oh, that's neat. You know, I don't think I at all understood the magnitude of it. I understand there's a special Mohawk guy that's working on the mission. But of course, at the time, it was extremely nerve-wracking. I think we were all just like, oh no, is this the mission? We have seen peak deceleration. Flight GSA. We've passed through peak heating and peak deceleration. Uh, it is reporting that we are seeing Gs on the order of uh, 11 to 12 Earth Gs. Flight. But the great thing a little bit about landing on Mars is at about three hours out, you are really... We're at 15 kilometers altitude. We have a connection, but we actually do not have any data yet. You are really just unable to do anything. This is Bobak Ferdowsi, a systems engineer at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. He's describing his last shift as flight director for the Mars Curiosity rover mission on August 5th, 2012, just shy of a year since the rover launched. We've passed through peak heating and peak deceleration. Uh, it is reporting that we are seeing Gs on the order of uh, 11 to 12 Earth Gs. About three hours out or so, there's really no good way for you to make very smart decisions that don't come with their own set of risk, right? So, you know, making a last minute call to change something is inherently very risky. And so I think it is kind of nice to be able to be in that position where you're like, well, the system is going to do what it does. We've programmed it, we've tested it, we've done all the operational checkouts we can. The analogy for me has always been like, it's like when you take a huge exam and you don't know your score yet, and now you're just sort of waiting for the results. It's that, a little bit of that sensation, but just, you know, it goes on for, for a few hours. From JPL's mission control in Pasadena, California, Bobak waited for what we now all know was a successful touchdown on the red planet. Touchdown confirmed. We're safe on Mars. The $2.5 billion SUV-sized rover roams the Gale Crater, where it first touched down looking for signs the planet was habitable in the distant past. The mission was one of NASA's most ambitious to take place on Martian soil. Millions tuned in across the globe. In New York City, a crowd of 1,000 people packed into Times Square at 1am under occasional rain just to watch NASA's live broadcast of Curiosity's landing on a massive screen. But people started paying attention to something else. As the broadcast flipped to and from Mission Control, the world saw glimpses of Bobak. His hair was shaved into a mohawk with the tips dyed red and blue and yellow dyed stars on the side of his head. 
the public took note. I understand there's a special Mohawk guy that's working on the mission. <laughs> this is former US President Barack Obama during his congratulatory call with the JPL team after the landing talking about Bobak. You know, he, he seems to have been uh, one of the many stars on the, of the show last Sunday night. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, I've, I've in the past thought about uh, getting a Mohawk myself. So, uh, my, my, my team keeps on discouraging me. Uh, and uh, now that he's received marriage proposals and thousands of new Twitter followers, I think that uh, I'm, I'm going to go back to my team and, and see if it makes sense. On Twitter, during the final hours of the landing alone, Bobak's follower count exploded from around 500 to over 17,000. He became a sensation in the news media, with article upon article now referring to him as Mohawk Guy. Bobak meanwhile was celebrating the mission's success, somewhat unaware of his own meteoric rise. I feel like I got a couple texts from friends and I was like, oh that's neat, and like I, you know, I don't think I at all understood the magnitude of it. And I remember when the social media folks me like, you're like, there's a thing going on here. And I was like, oh yeah, that's neat. You know, like, cool. Like, hey, thanks. And then I, I feel like, I, like it was around that time where I tweeted like, hey, cool, cool. Thanks, internet. You know, like, this is really fun. And it was somewhere around maybe two or three in the morning where I get a call from like a Swedish newspaper journalist who was like, yeah, you, you know, what's going on on the internet? Like, you know, like you're, you're this guy. And I was like, oh, I, I don't really know. I'm not really, I, you know, I'm out celebrating. Uh, I'll have to call you again in the morning or whatever. So that kind of was the first clue. I went home and slept for a while and I had signed up for an, like an early morning press shift, right? Which was just, you know, when I signed up, it was just generically answer calls, right? They were like, we just need a bunch of people from the team to be available for journalist calls and, you know, any video chats or things like that. And then they were like, oh, you have your own stack of requests for people who want to talk to you. And I was like, oh, this is a very, this is a very strange experience. I don't think anybody goes into NASA thinking that that is going to, I mean, I assume the astronauts probably know that they're going to be famous, but I don't think anybody else thinks that. So what was it about Bobak that was so sensational? It wasn't just that he had a mohawk. It was, of course, that he had a mohawk and was working in mission control at NASA. It, it does sound like uh, NASA's come a long way from the white shirt, black, uh, dark rim glasses and the pocket protection, you know? The, uh, you guys are, are, are a little cooler than you used to be. People definitely had that preconceived notion. Part of that is, I think, because, you know, pre-internet, there was sort of a, a dearth of watching NASA missions. And then, of course, when once Challenger happened, I think, you know, you, you stopped seeing people roll out the TV carts in classrooms for shuttle. And so there wasn't a lot of necessarily visibility into the space program, I think, uh, until the rise of like streaming video and, you know, Twitter and Instagram and all these kind of platforms. So that was definitely a huge part of it. You know, a lot of what people remembered about mission controls and things was, you know, not that they were necessarily all the, you know, the skinny ties and white button ups, but certainly, you know, I think a, a relatively older perspective. They hadn't seen a lot of mission controls since, you know, the 80s, maybe. And even visiting, I think, you know, Johnson Space Center and their flight control center. It is a slightly more conservative control center. And I think that also a lot of people decide to wear suits or more formal attire there. And I think that kind of makes some sense when you're saying like, whatever helps me get into the mindset that this is, you know, humans' lives are on the line. I totally appreciate why you might choose to somehow kind of transform yourself, right? To sort of 
dress for the job. And I think, you know, one of the nice things about JPL and of course being in California as part of it, but also, you know, the fact that it's robotic work and not human work does afford us a little bit more of the personalities being visible. I don't mean to say that anybody takes their job less seriously because of it, but I think it feels a little bit more natural to express yourself. And I think, of course, I felt like perfectly comfortable expressing myself because I also was walking around lab and not that there were tons of people with mohawks or colored hair or anything, but I never thought of that as being unusual, right? I saw people with tattoos. I saw people who, you know, dress differently. I saw people expressing their personalities. So that idea of me expressing myself through hair, I didn't feel like I was necessarily pushing any boundaries or that I was right in any way ostracized at work or felt like I didn't get the credit I deserved because of that. It's a huge credit to the lab and the environment that I felt was present. Bobak's Mohawk moment came years after he started at JPL. In his first role after graduating with his master's degree from MIT, he says he was fortunate that the lab he worked in had ties to NASA that helped him land his first role. From there, he started as many engineers do beginning their career. Just be as useful as possible while you learn the ropes. I actually started on Curiosity, which at the time was just called Mars Science Laboratory. It just changed names from Mars Smart Lander to Mars Science Laboratory. So it was a relative newcomer on the block. And I think they were like, we need warm bodies to do work. And so a lot of what I did was just, hey, we need maps of Mars to understanding the engineering constraints. If we modify, you know, can we land at this elevation? Can we land on these slopes? What areas of Mars does that open up or close off? Or other traits, but working on requirements. Uh, so a lot of the stuff was just be useful, which is a great way of apprenticing, honestly. If, uh, you know, I think you can kind of see a, a good breadth of, of different job options. But it was exciting. I mean, I, you know, somebody telling you, like, we're going to hire you to work on a Mars rover is, is definitely very unexpected. Even, I think, for me, when, you know, even when going to NASA, I didn't necessarily expect that would be the first job that I got. Fresh out of college or grad school, it's still really tough to know what you're doing. And of course, everybody just seems like so confident in their, you know, in their meetings and everything else. And I remember there was, it was a good year or two. I mean, it was maybe a year, but where like, I really was like the first time, I remember the first time, I don't remember what the question was, but I remember the first time being like, oh, I'm asking a question that is useful to other people, not just to me. You know, like, I'm not just asking the question, like, what about, what does this mean? Where everybody else knew the word already. It was like some question about like, oh, is this the right approach or something? And I was like, oh, I felt so good. But that took a while to get there. I, I see people, you know, now starting and I, I'm like, some of these people are so useful from day one. But I really wonder, honestly, if I was very helpful the first, first year or so. So you think it was like a year or two into that, that you actually felt like you were contributing? I was definitely doing work and I'm sure I was helpful in that, you know, that was freeing up somebody else to do other work. But I don't necessarily feel like I had, you know, the self-authorization or any internal guidance or prioritization of work, right? It was very much somebody would be like, can you do this? And I'd be like, okay, I think I understand how to do that. I'll go talk to a couple people, you know, experts about whatever rock distribution models to figure out if there are craters, you know, in this landing area, what is the distribution of rocks around the crater? What if you land on one of those rocks? You know, would it destroy the the rover? So there were questions like that where I could kind of figure out bit by bit how to answer some of the pieces, right? By like just talking to people who who knew what they were doing and then just kind of executing. Really, it kind of boils down to I was executing somebody else's vision for 
you know, the first couple of years, right? There were just people saying like, hey, we need this done. And, you know, I was able to help them get that done. But it was, you know, a year or two in where it was starting to be like, okay, I have ideas about how to do some of this stuff. And, you know, oh, here's an approach that I thought up of, you know, of solving this problem. What was the actual timeline on like when you started to when the rover actually landed? So, yeah, I started in November 2003 and we landed in August 2012. Wow. So that's like a significant part of your adult life, really. Yeah, it's it's atypical. I don't think most people stick on a project for. I, I basically ended up spending almost ten years, all said and told, with uh, doing a little bit of the surface operations too. But yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's not typical for most people to spend ten years on a project. I think average, you know, you're probably around three to five ish years before it's time to move on to the next thing. I'm really happy I did that because being able to see a project from really concept to implementation in aerospace, can be very difficult, right? Because the projects are often so long. But recognizing the kind of the mistakes that we made as well from upfront, you know, in terms of how we design things, the choices that we made, you know, potential trade studies that we chose that later on had consequences in operations. Unfortunately, I don't think most people get to have that experience in an aerospace context where, you know, if you look at the development of uh, a lot of those, you know, projects, whether it be airplanes or satellites or anything, you know, many of those product lines can take a decade or more to build. And so from the time you start to the time that thing is in service or in use, you've often rolled on to a different project. So I'm really happy with that choice. Staying on the project for its entire life cycle gives you the opportunity to see the long-term impact of decisions that were made early on. When you set out to design something novel, you are forced to make decisions based on the information and insight available to you at the time. Sometimes, as the program matures, however, these early decisions are shown to carry unexpected consequences. This is especially true for when the design actually goes into service. Weirdly enough, also, there are things that we discovered about our rover that were not the way we intended it to work, but then for Perseverance, they were made intentional because it worked the first time. Right? So, I mean, literally chose the, you know, aspects of like the solar array design or things like that, that turned out they were not exactly the way we had thought they were going to operate. And in cruise, we saw it, but then on Perseverance, they're like, well, it worked on Curiosity. Now let's make that the design choice, which is a very funny thing to think about, right? That kind of a mistake becomes permanent because it, it works. Right. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a theme you see a lot in science and engineering, those happy coincidences Uh, that actually work out. I was, I mean, I was gonna say it probably would have worked the other way too, right? The the way we actually intended it to 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 operate, but you know, once it's there and once you kind of create something that is certifiably works, even if it wasn't the way you intended, it's it becomes good enough, right? And I think a lot of people, certainly looking at NASA, probably don't think that most of our missions are just adequate, but in many cases, that's the responsibility, right? It's not make the absolute best most amazing thing ever. It would take us, you know, 30, 40 years of engineering to make the perfect mission or whatever. And in that time, of course, technology and everything else would pass you by. But in our case, right, a lot of times it's, oh, this worked. It's good enough. Got the job done, right? Got us to Mars. And okay, that is the that is the choice now. Was there an extended problem that you um that you remember solving during the development stage that I know that feeling that that big release of dopamine when you guys solved a problem? 
Uh, I think the biggest senses of, of a kind of accomplishment for me, we were doing one of our very first system tests. And this was 2007 or 8. And when we, 2007 and 8, we, we were going to still launch in 2009 at that time. And so this was the very first time we'd kind of integrated all the flight hardware. So as opposed to the test bed where we have like a, you know, engineering models of the hardware. So the, you know, the same or similar computer you know, same or similar electronics boxes, you know, same or similar start uh, scanners, things like that. We were now integrating the flight hardware that we were, you know, was, was going to fly to Mars and we were doing a system test and we had an issue on day one of that. And it was one of those things where I had just, you know, I kind of wrapped up my shift and we were doing well and I was heading home and they were like, oh no, we've had an issue. And in order to get this back on track, we need to kind of reset the system and reconfigure it the way it was supposed to be. And, you know, I then like, sat there for the next four or five hours writing a procedure with a colleague of mine. And that was incredibly satisfying. Like I felt like I saved that test to keep going. And it, like I was able to do that because I was like, oh, I actually have the knowledge of how this system works. I can write this procedure if I just, you know, pull from existing elements and write, fill in the blanks here and there. And that was an incredibly satisfying moment. And so, you know, from that moment, I remember when we realized that we had to move the launch date from 2009 to 2011, that experience alone was kind of one of the real reasons why I was like, I'll, I'll stick it out another two years because that was such a satisfying feeling. And were there any extended problems after the launch during the cruise portion of the mission? We definitely had our, you know, our fair share of anomalies. Right, it, the, the first one came only a couple of days after launch, where the computer reset while we were trying to get into our cruise configuration where we use the stars for guidance, right? So early on, you kind of, you can, right when you first launch, you're going to use, you've got the earth in view, you want to kind of use uh, the sun sensors and just kind of coarsely point the spacecraft. But eventually you need to do very precise pointing in order to target Mars for a landing. But at the same time as we were trying to do that transition, we had our, our first major anomaly and a, and a reset of the computer. And, you know, we weren't sure why. And that was definitely a really... I, would, I mean, in retrospect, a very happy and exciting experience because you're like, oh man, we, we saved the day. But of course, at the time, it was extremely nerve-wracking. I think we were all just like, oh no, is this the, is this the mission? Can we, can we ever figure out what caused this reset? Will it happen again? Could it happen at the wrong time, of course. Yeah, and, and what was the anomaly exactly? Uh, I think, as I recall, there was, you know, we're, we're, we're using often well-established hardware, but often hasn't been used in these ways before. And if I recall, it was a very specific memory issue that had to do with how we were operating memory, right? Which is different than, you know, 99% of the people who use that same memory chip. And uh, there was some very nuanced, you know, basically, I think, race condition in that, in that use of memory that caused the, uh, the reset to occur. And so the team, you know, went right where they would go. They would, once we saw the issue, you dig through the archives of tests to see if you've seen anything similar. You go off and try to figure out can you recreate that problem, of course, and then ultimately you you try to fix the software or do something else operationally to make it work. And when it does work, the result is a historic accomplishment. In Bobak's line of work, it's one that the whole world is tuned into. One of the things I find um, particularly interesting about your job, and it's like one of those things I don't think a whole lot of scientists or engineers get to experience, is... It's almost like a World Cup final or something when the thing you've been working on for the past 10 years is about to have this yeah. big moment of like, is it going to work? 
is it going to land and the entire world is watching? Like, I remember very vividly what I was doing when the Curiosity rover landed. Uh, it was it was awesome. I mean, I, you know, that was the first time, of course, in my life that I really ever worked that hard or long on anything. So that payoff was was huge. You know, I, I remember we were going through the dress rehearsals, right, where we're, you know, practicing the landing and making sure that we understand where all the tools are. I remember going through those and being like, well, this was good. And even our project manager coming in after one of the dress rehearsals and, you know, sort of saying, well, I hope you guys are a little more excited when we actually land because that was the most boring ending to, uh, you know, a landing I've ever seen. And I did not, you know, I, I, yeah, I laughed at the moment or whatever. And I was like, oh, we worked hard. You know, that was, that's it. You just, you, you do it, you work hard, you, you land the thing and we're all like, yeah, good job. We're done. All right, time to go get some sleep. And it was so funny, you know, that landing night and just being like, oh my God, I'm crying, I'm crying, I'm crying. I'm so, this was amazing. Like, you know, I was both, I think physically and a little bit mentally exhausted getting, you know, getting from, through that mission. And that moment was immediately like, oh, I would do this again in a heartbeat. Like, this is the best feeling. Yeah, I find the uh, psychology of that kind of stuff really interesting. I always found that one of the few times it was socially acceptable for me to cry, and I'm sure a lot of people feel this way, was after like a sports game or whatever. Right. It feels like this thing you've been working on really hard for an entire year and you're in the final and like you win and you're crying and you lose and you're crying. Yeah. It's just like you've put so much of your self-worth and identity into that struggle and no matter where it goes, it's just, it has that emotional response and you're there with your team as well. Right. And I, you know, for even for, for definitely for sports as well and, and for, for so many of these engineering things, you know, these are not just, jobs because you are ultimately making personal sacrifices you know to to participate in that right what you know whether it's on a on a sports team whether it's oh i'm going to spend my weekends you know practicing or whether you know for for us it was i'm going to take that third shift right the midnight to 8 a.m test shift but i'm going to miss somebody's birthday party or some you know dinner with friends or whatever it is whether you immediately realize it or not you know you've made a lot of choices to make that thing successful or make the team, you know, help the team be successful. Having gone through the experience, now I can recognize that those are choices that I'm making. But at the time, right, I didn't really think about what those choices meant. Those choices have led Bobak to where he is now, a mission with NICER. It's a collaboration between NASA and the Indian Space Research Organization. Together, they're developing a synthetic aperture radar, which will orbit Earth and measure its changing ecosystems. They're projecting a launch date at the tail end of 2022. It's really nice and I think very timely in, in my mind to be working on a neuroscience mission that will look at sort of the um, geological changes that are happening on our planet, uh, forestations and you know ice melt and, and so on, right? That we can be responsive to natural disasters and create kind of real-time maps that can help people, you know, allocate resources after an earthquake or after you know catastrophic uh, natural disasters and so it, it feels very good to be working on something as much as i love mars and you know exploring and i will get back to that at some point is also really um, uh, much more rewarding than I, I thought it would be to work on earth science and and kind of feel like all right i'm making a you know hopefully a direct impact if this mission is successful to the quality of of life here on earth 
the work of Bobak and engineers like him brings us to the precipice of a new era of human exploration of space and informs us about the problems on the horizon for our own planet. To solve these looming problems will require creative thinking and all hands on deck. That's the beauty of the work of space and planetary exploration. Each new technology that comes online inspires humankind to rethink what's possible. And people like Bobak, who show up to do the work as their authentic selves and inspire people across the globe, help us rethink what's possible. I think there is a huge value in showing, you know, as, as a sort of demonstrating that these incredibly difficult things are possible. And for folks to sort of use, hopefully, some of those examples, you know, to push through challenges of their own. I don't think we can underestimate the value of Apollo and how often right people are going to refer to Apollo. It's like, if they can do that, why can't we do other things? And I think that's a really good mindset you need in the portfolio of like, I need things that, of course, benefit me immediately, but you also need things that inspire you to do incredibly challenging things. And I think that's where space exploration can really, because the environments are so challenging, because it's such a unique experience, that I think it can really help folks to sort of be like, all right, you know what, like, if they can put rovers on Mars, hopefully we can figure out how to, you know, solve problem X. And how do we, you know, how do we start that problem? And I kind of hope that at some level it can serve as a little bit of a halo effect that, you know, folks like me who were inspired by the space program as a kid, and I obviously ended up very directly in the space program itself, but, you know, that that somehow if we can get these moments of, of excitement, whether it be in space or maybe even other fields, that you can attract a, a much wider audience uh, people who to come join those fields, um, right? Whether, you know, maybe you get inspired by space, but you're like obsessed with space medicine. How do you treat people, you know, if they're a day away from home or two days away from home on space station, right? And then that person goes off and, you know, develops some amazing technology for, for treating, you know, illness on earth. So I really, I hope that those kind of challenges can kind of inspire folks to go into a variety of fields. At some level, I don't want to call space relatable, but I think it's, it's so obviously special and and different from our world that it makes it it feel very special thank you for listening to this episode of modulus let us know what you think of this podcast by tweeting us at modulus mag or if you're feeling generous give us a rate and review this podcast was brought to you by the minds and team behind youtube's real engineering and real science this episode was hosted produced and written by yours truly brian mcmanus edited by Graham Harther, and produced and written by Erica Corder. Our music composer is Lee Rosefear. Thank you to our guest, Bobak Ferdowsi, for sharing his stories with us and our listeners. If you'd like to listen to more of this podcast or others like it, go to watchnebula.com and be sure to subscribe. Until next time, thanks for listening.